Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from our usual table at the Sunday Bar of the Department of Dairy Science here on the beautiful Hubble campus. This week, we're discussing the discovery of cheese in an Egyptian tomb dating to the 25th dynasty. It has us wondering, what is cheese, you know, really? Yes, it's made from milk, but how did humans in antiquity figure out how to make it, convince each other to eat it, and most importantly, keep it safe? In case you hadn't heard, animal products, including cheese, pose certain risks. You really need to know what you're doing, otherwise you're going to end up with brucellosis, which sounds pretty bad, or anthrax, which is probably worse. So maybe there's a reason certain cheeses ended up in tombs. It might even be the same reason we have expiration dates on ours. Um, <clears throat> should, we, should we give a shout out real quick to, uh, to our listener? And uh, whom we whom we appreciate very much, uh, who might be driving down the highway at night, listening to us, who who might be sitting at work laughing out loud, um, frightening coworkers. You never know, but you we never appreciate know. the yeah, we appreciate the attention because right. we love each and every one of our listeners. Yeah, that's right. Nobody else pays as much attention. Because I think we have at least, I don't know, three listeners, four listeners, five listeners. I no, I don't not sure that's statistic. We, we have a lot of listeners in Belgium because we're we're a very, very prominent historical podcast in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, especially ooh, in the, the Belgians. <laughs> I just envision the one listener you know, hitting the download button like 10,000 times. Right. That's how we got the 10,000 downloads. I, 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 I'm very appreciative. I'll tell that to my Dean. <laughs> put it on your report. <laughs> the listener should put it on their report. That's right. Like download 10,000 times. Okay. The lightning round. Um, not going to be, not going to be obvious because we're okay. not obvious people. Okay. <laughs> we're, oh, no. we're, well, I'm as obvious as as you could possibly be. I try and eschew the obvious, at least personally. Um, But in the spirit of, you know, psychologically revealing, uh, you know, profiling, I'm just curious about, um, you know, favorite sandwiches. That's easy. Is it? That is so easy. Go for it. Okay. Well, firstly, I love sandwiches as my, as my, physical visage will attest but <laughs> we really do know, need to do a video now we podcast don't. <laughs> but growing up in a kosher house as opposed to being kosher huge mm-hmm. distinction right and growing up in jersey the it's italian a hoagie, yeah, italian, the hoagie. italian hoagie you know 
Okay. Half day of school, go to the local sub shop, get a, get an Italian. I mean, you know, that was, that was mana from heaven for this, for the young suburban Jew. <laughs> and then you, and then you go into the Mecca every now and then you go into New York and get an right. Italian, you get yelled at, you get an Italian, you know, there'd be a hair in it and your day was complete. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was okay. a good, good, easy answer, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Professor Hallett? Um, I will say a cheese, tomato, and mustard sandwich. Oh, um, trying to think about what kind of bread I would want with that. Um, not really Maybe. sure. Maybe toasted rye. Yeah. Yeah. Simplicity itself, really. I, that's a I'm classic. very simple. But, yeah. but no, but that, that's a that's a such an elemental classic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really the 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 alpha and the omega of sandwiches that have been so described. Far, well, let's see where. Yeah. Where the lambda <laughs> where or the whatever middle letter there is. Um. <laughs> corned beef on rye. Oh, there you go. Mm. Corned mm. beef, not pastrami. Corned beef. Yeah. Well, it's so hard to get good pastrami in this day and age. For one even, thing. Even even New York. Even in New York, mm. but uh. You know, a nice corned beef sandwich, mm. warmed. It's a, it's a beautiful, sauerkraut it's a beautiful or, thing. Uh, I'm sorry? Sauerkraut on it? Uh, Yeah, that'd be good. And mustard? some spicy mustard, some kind. Mm -hmm. And the whole, the, the whole history of mustard, <laughs> we should do a, yeah, well, it's we'll a very interesting. We'll of course, it gets that. a little unnerving around World War One, but that's a, that's uh, a separate mustard that's, issue. Right. Right. <laughs> that's more of a mustard seed issue. That's true. <laughs> right. We we prefer to think of it mustard in condiment form rather than <laughs> as opposed to gaseous form. Yeah. Yeah. Though I it's, think when you uh, make mustard, you have to be careful of that. You have to have proper ventilation. Oh, that's a good point. Well, it's certainly when certainly when you make um horseradish, like for, oh. for Passover. It's uh, and I suppose with wasabi and other horseradish type roots, um, you can get yourself nice chemical burns, and oh. uh, and the the vapors can burn your sinuses and singe the hair in your nose. All right, can I remind you that we're not talking about mustard today? We're but yeah. mustard is the perfect accompaniment for what we are talking about. That is true, and I'm the only one who really got at what we are talking about in my choice of sandwich. <laughs> All right. I well, you know, true. we always because... put a little mustard on every one of these episodes. <laughs> well, that's very true. <laughs> but it, but in this case, and, and I'll be the one to say it, the cheese stands alone. <laughs> <laughs> well so, done. Extra yes, points does. for me, and and the discovery um, of of cheese in an eighteenth late eighteenth dynasty. Egyptian tomb has really broken the whole cheese issue wide open. It wasn't 18th what? dynasty. No, we're getting your, so that's the cheese that was found in 2018. Oh, that's yeah. the old cheese. That's the old cheese. <laughs> that's the old cheese. This, this is, is the new cheese. Oh, my apologies the, for the, the listener. The new cheese is, is Sayite period cheese. Right. Oh. The new cheese uh, led us to the old cheese. Right. Well, we work backwards, cheese wise. <laughs> Wait, when is the Sayite period? What's what 20, century is that? 25th 17th dynasty. Century. You know, what year is that? 
This cheese dates between the mid uh, seventh like, and mid sixth centuries. Yeah, right. it's like yeah. 650 to 550. Right, right. Although when you're talking about old cheese, it probably doesn't make a difference after a certain point how old it is. Well, well, that's very true. But uh, but in terms of sort of the, the historical approach to this, this is this is cheese since from around we, the time of Pharaoh Necco, not cheese. Since we, we strive for accuracy yeah, in, our, not, in our podcasting. Operative word being strive. It's not Ramesside cheese or anything. <laughs> I'll no, have the Ramesside cheese, please. Which sounds like some kind of fastball that some guy named Ramses from, you know, from from uh, Cairo would would be doing. Right. Yeah. All right. What's the deal with this cheese? Okay. Would someone set up the two cheeses? Okay. From before we get to all the all the all the, all the shtick. All right. So so they found very recently in 2022, uh, uh, cheese that dates to the seventh or sixth centuries BC um, in Saqqara, um, a very large uh, cemetery site in Egypt, which was in use since since the uh, early dynastic period, really. Dawn of time. Yeah. And um, they have been digging there for about six seasons most recently, and they found other sealed vessels there that they haven't opened yet, which sounds very exciting. So as we were trying to find more information of the particular blocks of cheese that they found uh, very recently, we also came across slightly uh, older, which is really slightly newer cheese. <laughs> slightly less recent. Hence my uh, confusion. Right. In in 2018, actually it was found in uh, 2010, um, they found um, 3,200-year-old cheese um, from um, also from a tomb at Saqqara that dates to, as I said, the Ramesside period, <laughs> dates, dates to um, the, uh, I, I guess, the 19th dynasty, um, Seti I and Ramses II. 13th century BCE. Right, 13th century. For those um, keeping score at home. And that was in the tomb of uh, Thomas, the mayor of Memphis. Um, so, so that's another cheese that we can talk about. There, I set it up. There now you somebody, go. Somebody talk about uh, cheese. Okay, so we have this. Um, we have this Sayite cheese, the cheese from from the mid seventh century, and um, one of the articles. Yes, one of the articles that refer to that cheese um, refers to it as halloumi cheese, right? Which I thought was which I thought was sort of going a little bit beyond the actual data. But I also found it very engaging. It would be like if if someone if a European archaeologist found some cheese and started calling it cheddar, <laughs> just because, just right. because that was their their hometown cheese. Um, and I guess the most interesting thing about that. And this is what I wanted to get to, is that halloumi cheese was actually originally called haram by the Copts in Egypt, hmm. but then they had to change the name because haram had, you know, a negative connotation in Arabic. Mm. Uh -huh. Sometime around the 16th century, which I thought was pretty late, they'd been going with halloumi for a, uh, haram for a long time. They changed it to halloumi or right. halloumi. Very interesting. It's like one of these European Union branding things. You can <laughs> well, it's sort of a an anti-branding. Like you know, we don't want to brand it with with the horrible name that we're using. <laughs> right. 
Um, um, I, 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 and I've made, I've made this clear to both of you. I do not like halloumi cheese. And I apologize to oh. our, our, you know, Cypriot, <laughs> our Cypriot friends, but it's too squeaky for me. It's very squeaky. It is. And I, I wonder whether the squeakiness comes from the fact that it is a combination of sheep and goat cheese, uh, goat milk that's yeah. been cheesified. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't so, know. I mean, I like goat I think cheese. It's a matter of the drying process mm. of how they of how it sort of gets fixed mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of its coroplastic aspects after it's actually made. Mm. That mm. could be. Um, but this yeah. this has all led me to wonder, um, like cheese. Where does it, where does it come from? <laughs> who 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 figured this out that? Oh, you know, we'll take some milk because everybody everybody likes milk, and then we'll add some some enzymes, which come from the inside of a from the right. inside of a, 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 a an animal's stomach, Rennet. and like oh, it turns into the solid. Right. Who's and who's the first person to eat this? Yeah, that's a very good question. All those questions. I'm, yeah, those are yeah. the same kinds of questions we would ask about, you know. Mayonnaise, uh, really. Right, or or mollusks that were not, you know, sort of cooked. Right, right. right. Who's the first person to eat it? It but would not have been me. I would have avoided it until, you know, until many other people had eaten it. Should, <laughs> should, we, should we use the term, should we mention the term um, in this context, secondary products revolution? Would either of you like to speak to that? <laughs> well, it's a it's a term. It's this idea that once once you dem- once you you for example, Rachel, domesticated <laughs> sheep and goats and cattle and other animals back that in um, back in the back in the day, day. <laughs> sometime after you know eight thousand BC or so, that yeah, you don't just eat the meat. But you use them for the milk. You use them for for traction. You use their hair. You use their skins. You use their bones. You use their other stuff. And it becomes a kind of long process of growing up together. Let us not forget head cheese in terms of using every part of the animal. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different kind of cheese, though. (laughs) Is it it spreadable? (laughs) Well, it's funny that you should say that because oh we actually know a little bit more about the other cheese example. Uh-huh. The other cheese. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, right. Well, the, uh, the cheese the that I do like. In, found in the tomb of Tom S. And uh, a chemistry professor at the University of Vermont, who is also a food historian, claims that the um, that the cheese found in um, the 13th century BCE was was indeed spreadable and mm-hmm. was uh, moist, spreadable, and like chevre. So um, right. he also said that it would taste very uh, acidy with a real bite. Right. Um, but we don't have any of that kind of analytical conclusions for the for the Sayite cheese, which is unfortunate. Right, that is true. And, and and there was cheese found in, in, in apparently in I think a first dynasty tomb. Apparently, right. so. we found a reference to that. Yep. So, um, so cheese though, goes way back. 
and and there are depictions of what is apparently cheese making in Egyptian reliefs, right? Which is sort of basically pots with things in them, right? And um, cheese. <laughs> well, who doesn't like cheese? Well, no. Well, and this a lot of people don't like favorite cheese. cheese. Well, that's it. Do, I thought you, you were wanna... ask that for that's the lightning like round. I know. Well, that's I'm getting to it now because I was eschewing the obvious, if you uh -huh. recall. Okay, I do remember. That would that. make a good little epitaph on a tombstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eschewed the obvious, and <laughs> now he's here. <laughs> oh my! All right. Um, favorite favorite cheese? Well, these days I would say cheddar. Although there was a long period when I really hated cheddar, and now I love cheddar. So yeah. I you? love cheddar also. It's very prosaic, very, you know, but I love cheddar. It's I love dependable. a good sharp cheddar. Yeah. I love a good blue cheese. Mm. I love stinky cheeses, but I, I will confess that there are some cheeses that are so, so pungent, Malodorous. so powerful. Malodorous. And that's an interesting question. Mm. What makes a cheese... What's the what's the 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 threshold for mallow malodorousness or <laughs> malodiferousness? Well, so that's the and is that issue. culturally determined? Right. Well, that's the whole issue of the acquired taste. Yeah. Right. So I assume all of these kinds of things, like you know, uncooked mollusks and mayonnaise and cheese and wine and you know, strong drink. I think. You know, aquavit, things like that. I think a lot of these products. Malort. Malort. Yes, malort. <laughs> I think a lot of these products, most of which have a much higher reputation than malort, um, <laughs> are acquired tastes. And so you really touch on something very interesting because I think that a lot of these things, but in particular, well, in particular cheese, and I would think also things like wine and things like mushrooms kind of fun function at two levels like there's sort of a pedestrian level in which a lot of the pungency and specificity of the taste have been bred or industrialized out so that it can be consumed by anybody mm -hmm. and then there's the sort of you know very very specific kinds of smells and tastes that are bred in and accentuated through breeding and production so that they become real not only prestige items, but ways of, you know, sort of um, showing off, showing, mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, showing it's your branding own, in right. a way. Well, branding, but also showing your own sophisticated palette. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly goes for today, uh, where, you know, um, food production is, you know, really uh, at a very high functioning level in, in elite circles. So, mm -hmm. um, Right. So, so Egyptian beer of antiquity, which was, you know, maybe 2%, uh, which would be liquid bread. And if you, if you drank enough of it, you would get a full stomach and maybe the beginnings of a buzz uh, is at the opposite end of the spectrum from, from let's say uh, an IPA of which has hints of jasmine and, <laughs> and blood orange which has been deliberately fancified in, right. in the contemporary context. 
Right. But don't don't forget that they're drinking their 2% beer because they can't drink the water or they'll die. So Right. But that and that also raises an interesting point vis-a-vis the cheese. Um, and the uh, the analysis of the of the earlier cheese, the 18th dynasty cheese, yeah. detected what brucellosis, right? right. And deadly to humans and is transferable uh, from animals to cheese if it's unpasteurized. And, right, exactly. Right. And so, considering they hadn't invented pasteurization yet, we... <laughs> <laughs> there's no record of a guy named Pasteur, Pasteur. or something. Exactly. Uh, right. Therefore, obviously, all the cheeses we're talking about are unpasteurized. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that's very interesting, too, because, uh, I mean, it, while it wasn't exactly the same as consuming the puffer fish, uh, <laughs> right. it, it was... It was, and maybe that's why cheese is showing up in tombs is representations of how, of how the entombed got there. That's true. The, the relationship between cheese and death is something that scholars haven't really Very good. appreciated. You know, this is something that I don't want to interrupt the flow, but I do think it's worth pointing out that like, why, why is food in tombs in the first place? You know, oh, Rachel, uh, this is your, this, this is, is your belly weight. This is your wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's worth, it's worth at least stating that. Um, oh, absolutely. Go, go yeah, for that, it. Because, I mean, we're taking it for granted that, you know, but today in modern society, we don't tend to put cheese or other offerings into tombs. But in Egyptian society and lots of other ancient societies, of course, there are tons of tomb offerings and you have to feed your dead. So you're leaving not just cheese, you're leaving meat, you're leaving breads, uh, you're leaving apparently cheese in your tomb for the deceased to be able to be nourished, um, at least at the beginning of the afterlife. Right. You need a snack for along the way. Right. <laughs> I mean, they were perfectly well aware that this stuff was going to, you know, rot and not be edible after <laughs> a short period. But uh, Right. Unlike materials that they would bring to priests to be sacrificed, which would be consumed. Exactly, exactly. And which theoretically, at least with tombs of the kings, you know, repeatedly sacrifice, you're, you're maintaining this cult for decades, right. potentially. Well, maybe that's why they took this particular cheese, because they knew it was kind of off and, <laughs> and funkified. And oh, that's all right. He's not, he's dead already. Yeah, really, <laughs> the brucellosis is not going to hurt him. Right, right. Maybe <laughs> they were taking, you know, bad cheese out of the out of their out of circulation. Right. Yeah, right, right. I kind of like that, um, which also has lots of implications for all the meats that you find or or containers that would have held meat that you find in tombs. And yeah, yeah I mean, we tend to think of the we, we tend to think of funerary offerings generally as wealth being taken out of circulation. Right. But maybe it's really just sort of quality control. <laughs> Can't, we can't eat that stuff. You know, he's dead already. It'll be right. fine. Hotep, Hotep, how long has this cheese been in the back? <laughs> oh, that's been, that's been there since Amenhotep the first. That's an old, that is a long time. Oh, man. It's, it's a theory anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because you can still have, and we don't know the exact contents of these particular tombs. At least I couldn't find anything about it. But, you know, I'm assuming there is great wealth in some of these tombs. There once was great wealth in some of these tombs. Um, um, so it's, I'm sorry, finish. I apologize. No, no, no. no. It, but, but in addition to the supposed, uh, you know, nice tomb offerings, you're also giving your rotten 
cheese or you're about yeah, to rot cheese, cheese according yeah, to Alex. You're cleaning out the cupboard. Yeah. In the in the um in the 13th century cheese, which clearly clearly is much more interesting in its reportage than the than the 7th century cheese. In the 13th century cheese of uh Pta mess, there was a little line in one of the articles that said it it was found in a lateral storehouse in the area of New Kingdom tombs. So yeah. I was wondering if there was some confusion and it was actually not in a tomb. Right. But there wasn't I, I a lot it, more. Yeah, I thought it was in a storehouse associated with the tomb, but the relationship was not clear. Right. The so right, the relationship is not clear, but it is very interesting because if it's in a storehouse in a New Kingdom cemetery, then that tells us something different. Like, okay, we've got we've got some more burials. This guy's a mayor, you know. Go in the go in the storehouse and pull the appropriate, you know, what valued cheese for a mayor. Like, not the best cheese, but not the worst cheese. Right, right. Or maybe the this guy really liked cheese in his lifetime and was just you know given something that he liked. I don't really think so, that, but it kind of I kind of like saying it. The other thing I thought was you really remember how much he loved spreadable cheese. <laughs> oh man, I always think about. Him spreadable just take a couple pots of it and put it in his tomb. Well, you know, man. I mean, spreadable cheese. I mean, who doesn't like poisson? I mean, that, who doesn't? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a little hint of garlic in it or that, something. Exactly. What but the other thing, did they find crackers? <laughs> right, you do. The other thing that was really interesting, I thought, was that this broken jar of cheese yeah. was covered with canvas. Yes. And so that led me on a whole other thing. Like, oh, they're not just making cotton. They're actually making canvas. Yeah. And it's like, wow. I mean, canvas has a lot of sort of different kinds of utilities than just cotton. That's interesting. And see what I was thinking of, and I forgot to look up the process of cheese making, but cheesecloth, like you need to be able to drain cheese mm -hmm. how. Right. So that's what I was thinking when I yeah. read that. You got your oh. curds, you got your whey. Yeah. <laughs> and you got your cheesecloth. Right. Exactly. So that's another, and and if 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 there's anybody who is interested in ancient textiles more more than Alex, I'd like oh, to know. There you are there are many people who are much much more interested. <laughs> I know you got your flax, you got your wool. Um, right, I stop, I stop at cotton. Now we've got but... our cheesecloth and canvas. Yes, yeah. yes, it's your next two projects, Alex. Cheesecloth, <laughs> antiquity of cheesecloth. Yeah, but um. Actually, though, when when you make something like mozzarella, um, you don't uh, you don't use you don't use that. You put the things together and you manipulate it by hand, and then you you start pulling the the things and and making the balls, and all the rest of the stuff gets gets poured off in some way. I think I saw after the on after that. the reaction on how it's made. How it's made. I saw that, yeah. yeah. Um, um yeah <laughs> what's what's happened it was just a shared thought a happy reminiscence about a about a, a show we, we shared a moment there <laughs> the other thing about the the 13th century cheese is it was cow milk and sheep or goat milk what mm. that yeah not just sheep and sheep sheep slash goat milk which was being used in the in the so-called halloumi cheese of the seventh century right right 
Um, and sort of sheep and goat milk is a combination. I mean, if you're going to herd sheep and goat together, which basically people do, so I'm very comfortable with their milk being together. <laughs> but so uh, they were comfortable with it too. Yeah. So cows is adding a whole other element. It is adding a whole other element, and it's a, a different consistency and a different, ultimately, end result and a different taste and um, yeah. and also you know different. Right. I mean, you know, you gotta. All of a sudden, you have to have a big mixed herd that might not actually be the way herding. Well, or you're or you're bringing components from different sources, exactly. Yeah, and and doing it together in the in the cheese factory as as opposed to a single source. You know, this is a sheep. This is sheep milk, right? Oh, cheese or sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, no. I'm just the, the question of cheese making. In antiquity, in general, is this a cottage industry where they're maybe producing? Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. very well. well it's always the quiet ones. You have yeah, to watch. But, but I'm, I'm serious, or is this more of an industrial endeavor? Well, so many things in Egypt are at the at sort of the quasi-industrial or what we like to call industrial level. Right. Um, Household that, plus. Yeah, uh, that would be surprising if it really wasn't. And okay. the fact that they're, you know, like Alex said, coming from multiple sources, um, it's likely. Uh, right, because so much of what goes on in Egypt, certainly in these periods and uh, before and after, is is kind of industrial rationing, uh, in, industrial production for rationing uh, of one sort or for provisioning institutions. Right. Like. You know, this is the, it's temple size production. It's it's uh, palace size production, or or what have you. Although I don't think we know anything. You know, we know that we know this about beer, right? And bread and, and bread, mm -hmm. right? Really, the two commodities we know probably the most about, right? Production, also know certainly a, something about linen production and textile production because of the depictions that we see and the assumptions that we make about those depictions. Mm -hmm. Right, and but but all of those depictions are from tombs, tombs, but uh, tombs of elites who would be producing it at the right. household plus quasi institutional level mm -hmm. for their. It's the estate level, let's say. Right, right, and um, the fact that Egypt is so highly centralized. Yes, right. I and, think you can draw and something. Saqqara, Saqqara, as the place where all these cheeses have been found. Uh, was in use as a royal necropolis and as an elite burial spot for a couple of thousand years. So, um, I, I and, and who knew it was like the the Swiss Alps of you know <laughs> central well, cheese production as well. Maybe right. Though so, you know, there's lots of places throughout the world that make cheese and have tried to you know emulate the highest levels of cheese making and just end up making crappy cheese. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, let's not, they were making cheese the way they knew how to make cheese for their own purposes, but I don't think that. With the, with the resources that they had right. on hand. Yeah. Um, right. if, if you go to, well, it, you know, if you go to the, to the Alps, the Swiss Alps or something where they have different animals at different altitudes, um, grazing then you have you know different kinds of cheeses being made if you go to i don't know scotland uh, or or if you go to the levant <laughs> let's go to the levant where they're where they're making if not cheese they're making other kinds of dairy products mm -hmm. um 
yogurt or fear Lubina or some kind of runny you know runny fermented dairy product uh, fermented milk fermented mare's milk fermented whatever milk as opposed to block big blocks of parmesan and uh, so i think you work with what you got in the environment that you ha- that you have right and with the animals that you that you have um and and you know I don't think that in an environment like Egypt, you're going to be making Parmesan from, even though there were were water buffalo, weren't there? I think. (laughs) In Egypt? I don't know. Yeah. Our listener can get get back to us. I don't really know when the water buffalo was domesticated and then diffused to all these different places. Right. But it becomes, but it's particularly well adapted to, you know the Po Valley of uh, of northeastern Italy, <laughs> where, the, where the best well, is. How long have you been waiting to drop that little line? <laughs> I just, I think that's my that's probably my favoriteest of favorite cheeses is Parmesan. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, oh, Parmesan's Parmesan a good cheese. Yeah, the hard salty cheeses. Right. Yeah. Um. So I just you don't did... like halloumi. No, I don't like halloumi. It's too squeaky. <laughs> I don't like cheese that squeaks. I uh, just it's, did a, it's a shortcoming on my part. A, a quick uh, Bible gateway search on the word cheese. And the word cheese seems to only be mentioned three times in the Hebrew Bible. That's because um, they wanted to separate milk and meat. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, yeah. Twice in Second Samuel and once in Job. Just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. don't know what to make of that exactly. In our second hour, I, um, yeah, I thought I'm surprised. Actually, that's what I'm making of it. I thought cheese would be much more prominent. Well, there's it's the land of milk and honey, not the land, the land of land milk, of, honey. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe right. milk is a is an overarching term for all dairy products. Um, mm. well, you would have hoped for greater specificity from the biblical authors. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Is there is there is there a, a biblical word for yogurt? Uh, I don't know. Or probably not. Um, um, Eshel or Gill, you know, two percent, four percent. Well, that's actually that's a very interesting question because in the Middle East, milk products are are you know endless yeah. based on their fat content. Something that is sort of certainly underappreciated in in other parts of the world. Yeah. And so one wonders where this tradition of, you know, so many different kinds of cheese based just on very small differences in fat content when that started. But I suspect it probably started much later than the Iron Age. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, but you know. maybe there's some sort of geographic determinism that is connected with, with cheese production. You can't have, you can have soft cheeses <clears throat> like a, you know, like a, a goat cheese. But it has to be consumed right away because right. it's not going to last. Right. And, that's, can have a... and that's the point that this that this food chemist made about the um, about the what is it the nineteenth or eighteenth dynasty? I think it's, ni- it's the nineteenth. Oh, it's Seti 19th. and Ramses the second. Yeah. So the nineteenth dynasty cheese was um, uh, needed to be consumed immediately. It was soft right. and needed to be consumed quickly. Right. So it's not um, one of these hard cheeses that gets better as it ages. It's the opposite. right. 
Yeah. And it was dangerous. So if you wanted to poison someone, you could, you know, you could do that. <laughs> you could just right, but it's not but it's not storable after after a certain point. It's not portable after a certain point. Well, it is. You yeah. just don't want to consume it. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, if you wanted to, you know, knock off of the, you know, if you wanted to do your version of the Game of Thrones Red Wedding, you could trot out the, the, the cheese oil runny cheese and do away with, you know, just about everybody. Right. That's true. But now, now I'm getting more interested in, I mean, yeah, we're archaeologists and all that, but in the textural mentions of cheese, because now I redid my search and you can find a whole lot more mentions of curds than you can of cheese in the Bible. Mm. And yeah, and I didn't oh. get search for dairy and I didn't search for whey. And, you know, obviously I'm doing this all in translation. Um, you know, any other dairy words you can think of, but the specificity I think is interesting. So it's there, but they were thinking of it not as a block of cheese, if you will. <laughs> right. They're right. As or, individual types of dairy products. Um, right. A, 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 a yellow slice that you put with on your on your sandwich right well you know and when we're in israel and we eat cheese we talk about yellow cheese and white cheese and right um anyway so well I, that's I, and that's the beautiful thing that it's also variable cheese yeah. and there there's so many different kinds and and i've i've said this possibly to you both that when i win the lottery i'm going to go to a big supermarket and i'm going to buy one of every different kind of cheese yeah. okay Wow. So, you know, it's an unusual thing to aspire to. Yeah, but, uh, and, and even more unusual to sort of admit to. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like I, I feel like you know we can be honest with our listener. I think um, you're right. But I, I'm also struck by how it's a how it's a risk, and that 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 you know using animal protein of any sort on the hoof, off the hoof in liquid form or solid form represents, represents a real, a real risk uh, because you've got all these zoonotic diseases, you know, you can get, you get tuberculosis from hanging around animals too long. You get plague, you get salmonella from eating, you know, products that are, that are off. Yeah. Brucellosis is, is another one. So there's this there's this uh, there's this cost benefit analysis that our Pleistocene early Holocene ancestors just they just jumped in face first, right? But they were right. There was right. So there was risk. But I think you know the risk is being ameliorated over the centuries, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So clearly. You know, they figured out how to make a, a soft cheese and a hard cheese <laughs> in the second and first millennium, millennia. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, these are long term trends in making, you know, food sources safe. Right. And, and, and you got to uh, eat. Obviously, what? You got to eat. You got to eat and you got to not die from eating. Right. 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 And, and the number of people who died from eating, apparently was not enough for any of them to give <laughs> give up cheese <laughs> to stop eating <laughs> right or to get to give up a, a food source right yeah the and, same thing with mushrooms right I mean, oh good know, point yeah right wrong wrong decision up you know in the mountains and you know your little your little tribal group is all dead so yeah. right exactly 
Yeah. So, and, and there has to be a, a real body of cultural knowledge that goes with, goes with all of these different foods, whether they're mushrooms or, or cheese or how to dry meat properly, <laughs> or, you know, Oh, you want to cook that before you, before you eat it, because right. you're, right. you know, I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think of all the work they had to do for corn to, mm-hmm. you know, to get corn in an edible form. Now that wasn't dangerous, but it was certainly not, you know, an efficacious way to get, you know, um, to get, to get food in your system. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work and a lot of experimentation. Right. And, um, right. Um, well, I think the moral of the story is <laughs> good for that. You go, you go, you Bronze Age scientist. <laughs> good job. <laughs> We're the beneficiaries. <laughs> Dairy scientists of the Bronze Age. Now that's a name for a band. <laughs> this is a good name for a band. It's sort of a, a, a Wisconsin punk band of some kind. I'm writing that one down. Oh, good. <laughs> So what else? Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to note, uh, and you brought up stinky cheese, is that cheese is often found as a uh, as a as a theme and a motif in literature and film. And I was thinking about the books, The Stinky Cheese Man. I don't know if you remember those children's books. No, mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I was wondering if Egyptians had their own sort of tales of malodorous cheese hmm. or even hmm. odorous cheese. Hmm. That's interesting. Clearly, clearly, yeah. <laughs> that did not really. I don't know. The kind of reaction I was hoping for. As, you, as you a, stumped the panel there, I think. <laughs> as a person who will not eat a malodorous cheese, not for love or money, I just, I don't know. Yeah. So for you, the the acquired taste is not worth acquiring. Absolutely. And you know what other cheese I don't like? Maybe we should each say our least favorite cheese. I cannot stand cottage cheese. So oh. it's just hmm. the curds, the texture. Ugh, no. It yeah. is, has a very specific mouthfeel. Yeah. I don't know if there's a cheese I've ever met that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> and we encourage our listener to, to start sending in samples. Samples. <laughs> I'm sure there is out there, but I just can't think of it right now. Yeah, there has to be something that's so weird or funky that it's and but and the way you you know the way that the cheeses are are made and and the things that they're made with and well that's uh, right. and that is an interesting pro that's an interesting thing the discovery of rennet to yeah. make cheese how did that happen yeah that's just wacky yeah. Well, I suppose that the 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 traditional version, the one the version that Big Dairy wants you to believe, <laughs> is that um, you know that 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 primitive primitive man, primitive woman needed a container right. to hold um, milk. hold milk, and so they took the stomach of an animal, they, which they turned inside out. And lo and behold, what came out was not in the form that it went in. But let's it was try kind it anyway. Of, it's kind of clumpy and it smells weird. You know, <laughs> hey kid, <laughs> come here. 
right. taste this. Yeah. yeah and, that we have been, yeah. And, you know, well, and, and I would be, we would be remiss, you and I, in particular, if we didn't mention the, the, uh, the f- ceramic shape called the churn from the ah. calcolithic period right. in the late bronze age uh early bronze uh, uh, late prehistory that's there what i'm go. saying <laughs> calcolithic. That, that looks like presumably a a skin um with little grommets for suspension and uh and the idea was that it was always for yogurt but i don't think you could make yogurt in it because you can't reach in to scoop it out i think you'd have to I think it's some it. kind of fermented milk thing, but but whatever. Like, oh, and you know, in Africa, it, it fermented milk is like all over, right? Uh-huh. In, yeah. So, um, hmm. and and it's sort of it's sort of portable because you're it's sortable. You're, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a it's like a lunchable. <laughs> Right. Well, I, I was thinking of the calcolithic figurine with the the churn on her head. Um, on her head. Yeah. Yeah, somebody should write about that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, uh, so that makes it portable. But I was also thinking about... Where the well, calcolithic- yeah, if you have some girl carrying it on her head, pretty much anything, you know, is- smaller than a washing machine is portable. But well, that's true. No, we but don't I want to endorse that. There's kid yogurts, the liquid yogurts that... Yogurts. Yogurts. What? Oh, gogurts, gogurts. But I was also thinking yeah, of in the tubes, liquidy. Um, yeah. Oh, maybe they had those in the in the in prehistory. Maybe little tiny things that you'd squeeze out. That was like in a tiny little, you know, <laughs> animal part, animal organ. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. This is that that took a turn that we didn't really need to take. <laughs> All right. Any 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 summations about our about our uh, episode de fromage? Yeah, <laughs> Wait, let's think it through for a second. Um, um, people have different tastes in cheese, um, and <laughs> even though we don't like halloumi cheese, it's entirely possible that I that like it. Hold you you do. Like don't, don't okay. lump me. Do you like it? Do you like it grilled? Yes, I actually do like it grilled. And I like it when oh, they uh, cut, when they light it on fire, when they pour whatever brandy or whatever and light it on fire. Oh. I like all, you know me, I eat almost just yeah. about anything. Pretty oh. much anything, yeah. Okay. It's, that's true. Oh. I've seen this man <laughs> eat some things. <laughs> I like the expansion of, of the understanding of tomb artifacts beyond meat and bread and whatever else. I like to include cheese more prominently in our tomb offering franchise of, of materials. <laughs> okay. I just want to, I want to tip my hat to the first person who tried a, a fermented um, or otherwise modified dairy product. We are, we are deeply, deeply in your debt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where would we be without that act of bravery? And I think the only thing I want to mention about all of this is that I thought we would get to it organically, but we haven't. And so I just want to mention that one of my favorite Monty Python skits is the cheese skit. Mm. Yeah. 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 Wait, are we thinking of the same? I'm, I'm thinking of blessed are the cheese makers. 
No, I'm oh. thinking of I curtailed my wall pulling activity, sallied forth, and entered your place of purveyance in order to negotiate the vending of some cheesy comestibles. Come again? I want to buy some cheese. <laughs> <laughs> the cheese shop skit. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is and the there we are. Place to, to end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, this episode has me checking the expiration dates on pretty much everything in the refrigerator. But in any case, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to spank, spank our, thank our sponsor, not spank our sponsor, which would be pretty hilarious, really. The Hoople County Grange Fair, celebrating the fabled agricultural history of Hoople County since 1881. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East, as you know, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.